Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-43. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil can never, ever be separated out so that we could say, this is good and this is evil. No, it doesn't work that way. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a mixture to which we are genetically linked and corrupted. Hi there, and welcome once again to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. And on our episode today, we are going to continue where we left off on the last program, the last episode where we were talking about worldviews and how everyone in the world has a worldview. We all have developed a set of worldview principles by which we live and judge right and wrong in this life. You know, it's those values that guide all of us into the many choices that we make for everyday life. So. We're going to continue on this podcast where we left off the last time talking about these worldviews dealing with defining good and the Jewish question of accrued merit. Can we actually earn enough merit or perhaps we could say, can we um, uh, top up our accounts that come up short when it comes to the merit and the perfection that God demands of us, that requires of us, if we want to have a share in the olam haba, or the world to come after the resurrection from the dead. That is the olam haba. Because all Jews would like a share in the world to come. Naturally, all Jews would like that. That's in our teachings. In fact, a lot of people would like to have a guarantee that they will have a share in the afterlife bliss of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or the olam haba. A lot of people would like that, but not everyone's going to get it because there are certain rules, according to the all-eternal one, who has written for us his rules of engagement in the good book as we would say, or as it is said of him, that he has a little book of life and he writes our name in that book of life. But the question is, whose names get written into the book of life and consequently whose names do not make the grade and do not get written into the book of life? That is the real question. Well, is it based on what we do? Is it based on merit? Is it based on what is called the Olam Haba Zechut Avot? That is, the merit of the patriarchs, the merit of the fathers. Or is it based on something we can do by observing Judaism's three principles of uh, instructions or laws? And those three principles are essentially boiled down to Pray, pay, and obey. Pray, pay, and obey. Well, Scripture is pretty clear that those principles are not going to get you very far because you're still going to come up short on Judgment Day. 
And as far as the merit of the patriarchs, or as Judaism calls it, the Zechut Avot, the merit of the fathers, there's a lot of contradictions about that. Is it possible to gain their merit? And if it is possible, then how do we do it? But if it's not possible, or if we're bankrupt, as many of the ancient rabbis have said, then when did that well of merit dry up for us? How are we going to get ourselves saved from this horrible situation that we're in? That we don't have the availability of any merit. And I would say we do have the availability of merit. We do. And that is only through one person. That is Messiah, Yeshua. Messiah, Yeshua. It's only through him. But if you don't like that particular plan, then I would say, well, you're going to have to find something else because that's the only plan that I know of in the Hebrew scriptures that identifies the way of escape and the topping up of our account of merit. It's only through him. So let's continue where we left off in talking about this Jewish question or perhaps this world question of gaining merit so that we can have a share in the life of the world to come. Or put a different way, we will have to first define good for heaven's sake. And then with the understanding of how we are to define good, then we can know the Jewish question or the world question of gaining accrued merit. If you have any questions about where we're going in our podcast today, then uh, do uh, have a listen to the last podcast from the last week, and uh, then you can get a good handle on where I'm going to be taking this for today's program. Okay, so let's dive in. In the Genesis chapter 3 Garden of Eden narrative, when the text says that there was the tree of life in the midst of the garden and another tree in the midst of the garden, the narrative begins the statement with avav, as if to say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is also there. But, it could be read that it does not belong there. In other words, this other tree in the Garden of Eden, the Etzadah Tovarah, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this other tree is totally contrary and out of place in the garden. But the one thing that we do know is that the tree looked good to the eyes as Adam's wife Eve said in Genesis 3.6. Here's what she said. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. That's my translation as I'm reading it from the Hebrew. So, if that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was contrary to the Garden of Eden, and it did not actually belong there, then I would ask the question, well, who might have put it there? 
Who planted the tree into that soil? Was it Yehovah? My answer to the question is no. I don't think Yehovah planted something in his garden that was considered contrary to what was supposed to be there. No. Simply, the tree did not belong in the Garden of Eden. It was contrary to that soil. And it appears that Yeshua understood the challenge in this same way, explaining it to us through his parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew chapter 13, 24 through 28. Here is some of that statement here in Matthew 13, 24 through 28. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while man slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. If I might suggest, perhaps the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 entered the garden at some point and then planted his seed in there which sprouted, grew, and bore the poisoned fruit of a mixed-up tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yehovah obviously knew what had happened. Still, it was in his plan to leave that contrary mixed-up tree exactly where it was planted and to warn the man to stay away from eating of its fruit. Then it was part of his purpose to uproot the tree at the end of the days, as Yeshua was quoted as saying in Matthew fifteen thirteen. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted, regardless of when the tree was planted and exactly who planted it, It's not something that we're going to address today in any great detail, but one thing we do want to know is this. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what kind of fruit was it? I say that it was the fruit of some genetic modification, perhaps some tampering with the seed of good and a seed of evil, which I think was probably likely through the serpent or the devil or the Nahash, however you want to say it from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So I ask, how should we understand this idea of a tree of death and evil that is totally, completely contrary to Yehovah's tree of life and good, that is the Etz HaChaim. For this answer, let's read Isaiah 5, 20-21, where this prophet of ancient Israel gives us the answer to the question. 
Here is the statement that is made by Isaiah 5, 20 through 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and have understanding in their own sight. Now, compare this statement about those, quote, who are wise in their own eyes. Compare that with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3, 6, where it reads, he or it was a desired tree to make one wise. So here we have a definition for something that has been spiritually and genetically modified. That is, something that is wholly and completely bad and evil. But in order for its produce or its fruit to not look wholly and completely bad and evil, the fruit appeared to be kind of waxed over, so to speak, or covered up in order to make it appear beautiful and good to the eyes. But by its very nature, the fruit was not good. It's kind of likened to the fairy tale of Snow White's poisoned apple. Therefore, its fruit could only be bad or evil. Said differently, the tree fruit looked better than it actually was. The good of that tree appeared to Adam and Eve as something far better than what it really was. A tree with bad fruit and with evil purposes and motives. But one would never know it by looking at the fruit, only by eating it. It is this tree fruit that transformed the souls of Adam and Eve into like-kind trees producing like-kind trees. That's us. And therefore, producing bad and evil fruit, such as self-justification, self-improvement, self-honor, self-whatever, fill in the blank. Its fruit was known and defined in the New Testament, such as in James or Yaakov 3, 14 through 16. Let's read that. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from heaven, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exists, there is confusion, and every evil is there. So we must stop for a moment to ask ourselves the question that so many out there are obviously thinking. Is man or mankind inherently a creation of good? And if we can cultivate this inherent goodness in our creation and resist evil temptations, then there is some hope that we can transform ourselves into creatures of positivity and all spiritual good. 
we can be repaired. You see, it's just going to require that we would just commit ourselves to try harder and to be gooder. (laughs) In other words, if you can believe it, then you can be it. Yes, you can. As an old adage was stated many years ago in the political arena of Washington, D.C., Yes, you can. You see, it's all positive thinking. Just be your best self and drown out all those negative, debilitating voices that can steal away your true potential. So I would ask, does believing any of this produce the desired results of good fruit? Can we say that the fruit from this type of tree is actually good fruit? I think the answer is certainly yes. Believing all of this does, in fact, produce good fruit. And I'm going to put the word good in quotation marks. Let me explain. The reason I'm calling it good fruit is because it's not the pure good fruit from the tree of life, the Etz HaChaim, in the Garden of Eden. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil can never, ever be separated apart, separated out, so that we could say, this is good and this is evil. No, it doesn't work that way. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a mixture of corruptions unified and sourced from another kingdom, a kingdom of darkness to which we are genetically linked and corrupted, even unto two deaths, physical and spiritual. This is according to Genesis 2, verse 17 in Hebrew. Until we receive the gift of Messiah's salvation through his death and third-day resurrection, and until we are made in that to be a new creation in him, that is, in Messiah, all of our so-called good is nothing more than the covered-up, waxed-over fruit of sin and death. So we could say, yes, our good is not true good, but it's only made to look good as if it were true good. The reality is, yes, it only looks good, but it's poison. And it comes as a unified package, never separated out. This is bad. This is good. Nope, it's always a mixture, it's always embedded, it's woven together, and you can't ever tell the difference. Just like the prophet Isaiah said, Woe to him who calls evil good and good evil, light for darkness, darkness for light, sweet for bitter, bitter for sweet. That's the point. It's so woven and mixed together in this tree, there is no way of knowing what is what because it's waxed over. It's that image of that fairy tale Snow White's poison apple. Don't eat it. That's the point. So look around you in the world 
and look at all the good that's being done. And I would ask you, is that from the tree of life? Well, some of it is because it's from redeemed people who are saved unto Yeshua's work of death and resurrection on the third day. But much of the world's good, though it appears good and though it is actually benefiting many, many people, the world has lots of good. But guess what, folks? It's nothing more than the bad, covered-up fruit of sin and death because it is not the pure good of the tree of life. Now, this is best explained from Scripture. Let's go to Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Yehovah looks down from heaven upon the children of men or the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. And this is repeated in Psalm 53, 1 through 3. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Then Isaiah 64, 6 gives us a confirmation of this, saying, We are all like an unclean thing, and all of our justness is like filthy rags. The Hebrew here is that of a menstrual rag full of blood and death, the blood-soaked rags of a woman's menstrual cycle. We are like that bloody, blood-soaked rag. It's an unclean thing because it's got death in it. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities which in Hebrew will be from a word that gives us the English term twistedness and perversion. And our iniquities, our twistedness and perversions are like the wind. They have taken us away. Then Ecclesiastes 7.20, For there is not a just or righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. And then Paul, of course, much later on, picks up on all of this, quoting Psalm 53, 1-3, and Psalm 14, 1-3, in his writings from Romans 3, 10-12. Paul writing and saying, There is none just. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. When we perceive, see, and learn about 
all the world's common people, and yes, even some people who appear to be deeply religious, doing all manner of good and good actions in the world, and you know there's lots of that in the world. Keep this in mind. I don't think there is any such thing as actions of pure good in this world unless it is coming from a redeemed, saved person. And I am sorry to say that there are no pure actions of good in this world outside of the salvation and redemption of Yeshua. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back for the second half of our podcast and take a closer look at the points that Paul was trying to make, or at least as I think he was trying to make. This is Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. You are listening to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-43. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben Mordechai. Okay, let's continue on. Where we left off, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and we're talking about Romans 5, 6 through 8, where Paul said, When we were still without strength, in due time Messiah died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. So let's unpack it and get a closer look here. Here Paul is setting the stage for mankind's hopelessness, that there is really no one who does pure absolute pure good, agreeing with statements like those of Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, chapter 7, verse 20, quote, for there is not a just or righteous man on earth who does good and does not sin. So he writes, scarcely for a righteous man will one die. What does this mean? From Hebrew, the term that gives us the English word righteous is tzaddik. Now, tzaddik is a biblical word that essentially gives us a spiritual meaning that includes one who is innocent, blameless, and flawless at the level of the human nephesh or human soul. Among regular everyday human beings, Do you happen to know someone like this? Well, I don't, but maybe you do. But one thing is clear. There are other definitions that are being employed for the term tzaddik today, particularly in Judaism or even Messianic Judaism or even other types of religious philosophies linked to these ideas. And... uh, This idea of the tzaddik is often understood by many in our world as having a definition of saintliness. 
that is one who has saintly behavior or just saintliness. Okay? So here is the question. Do you know someone who is really, 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 really a decent, blameless, saintly character? Well, there are a few people like that out there. And I would say among all descendants of the downline genome of Adam, there's not so many of these kinds of people, though I admit once in a great while, we will at times run across folks out there who live pretty close to this in their life. There are people who are extremely saintly in their way of life and thought, but again, not so many. So let's look again at Romans 5, 7 in this light and paraphrase the idea perhaps in this manner. Scarcely for a really, 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 really decent, blameless, awesome, saintly person will one die. So then, Paul takes the hyperbole or exaggeration a step further and says, perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Again, as I understand the essence of this statement, Paul is giving us a different hypothetical proposition. Here, I would paraphrase his position by saying, perhaps... Maybe, maybe, perhaps, for an above-average person and just an all-around really good soul, not so much super saintly, but just a really good soul, would somebody even dare to die? So, in summary, we have in Romans 5, 7, a kind of comparison albeit in the form of a hyperbole or exaggeration, that essentially paints images of two types of characters that someone might die for. One, dying for a true saintly person who might be really, 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 really blameless and perhaps nearly flawless totally, completely saintly. Yes, someone might die for somebody like that, but it would be scarce. And then the second point, dying for a person that is, you know, not so totally saintly, but still perceived to be a truly good, above-average type of person, you know, an all-around really good, decent soul, a person who is a bit lower on the morality scale of his or her character as opposed to one who is saintly and totally flawless in the sense of getting as close as you can to heaven's flawlessness. Yeah, dying for a truly saintly person is going to be a scarce kind of thing to find. Dying for a person that is perceived to be truly above average, just really great, but not perfect. Would you die for somebody like that? Uh, you might. You might. Possibly. So, this said, Paul then brings his argument to a point from scarcely dying for a person to 
maybe dying for a person, all depending on that person's level of perceived saintliness. So, Paul goes on to say in his conclusion, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Whoa, well, 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 wait a moment here. This is deep, considering the words of great people like King David, who said in Psalm 53.3, There is none who does good, no, not one. Or the Jewish prophet Isaiah, who said in 64.6, All of our justness is like filthy rags that is a menstrual blood-soaked rag of death. It's not like the Messiah comes and says, oh, you people are just so totally over-the-top fantastic. Oh, you people are just so perfect. You're so, you're, you're so, wow. You're so righteous. You're so blameless. You're so good. You're so all-around Wow, you know, you just, my jaw drops looking at how I'll die for you any day. No, no, no. God sees us as grimy, soiled, unclean, foul, not good, twisted, perverse, deeply in a state of a genetic imprinted sin nature that is likened to a metaphor that we actually live in. That is, our skin. We live in our skin. One that the prophet Jeremiah wrote about, saying in this way from Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard his spots? Then, says the prophet, may you also do good, who have been taught or learned evil. So what are we learning here? You can't change your evil into good. That's the lesson. It's just impossible, period. Yehovah, the Eternal One, recognizes that we humans are in a hopeless state of imperfections built from a twisted and perverse imprinted sin nature from the Garden of Eden that can never, ever break away from our human condition unless Messiah does it for us. In other words, Jehovah must do the repair, not we ourselves. Our efforts to become great, wonderful, powerful, good, saintly, holy, flawless, wow people will only amount to total frustration and ultimately lead us into two deaths, physical and spiritual, period. This is according to Genesis 2.17. We are born into this human condition, this imprinted sin nature from the Garden of Eden, and there is nothing that we can do about it to break away from it by ourselves. Our transformation is going to require a work that is so far beyond anything that we can even imagine. 
if that is even possible to imagine. So Paul says in Romans 5.8, but Elohim, or God, demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still grossly putrefied in our imprinted, inherited sin nature from the Garden of Eden, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that which was passed down to us, since we were still grossly putrefied in our inherited sin nature, even then, Messiah died for us. So he didn't die for us because we were so, wow, what a person you're worth dying for. No, we were sick, weak, gross, putrefied. We have nothing by which to offer the Almighty. This, Paul says, goes far, far beyond scarcely dying for a great saintly person, or perhaps even dying for a good, above-average, moral person. No, Messiah gives his life up for each of us when we are neither saintly, nor even above average, nor even potentially worth dying for. Yet, Yeshua did this for us to please His Father in heaven and our Father in heaven, and He did this for us voluntarily. This is precisely why Yeshua said the following in Mark 11, 25-26, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, Matthew 6, 11 through 12, Yeshua's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. You see, the people that have wronged you are not worthy of you dying for them, are they? If someone comes along and wrongs you, I mean really, 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 really wrongs you, Would you feel so justified enough to say, well, I'll die for you. Thank you very much. If you're redeemed, you might. You might have that feeling. If you're redeemed and saved, yes, you might. But if you're not a redeemed person, if you have no connection to anything here in the biblical sense of righteousness and justness and holiness and the biblical truth, if you don't have any of that, If you don't have that worldview in your thinking, would you die for that person? I doubt it. So Yeshua says in the prayer, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So if someone is totally and completely in debt to you at some particular level, and I mean in debt, and it's hurting you, it's wrecking you, it's ruining you, it's destroying you, whatever it's doing to you, Would you be able to say, as a worldly, unredeemed person, I'm not talking about you as a spiritual person, I'm saying as an unredeemed world 
person, would you be able to say, oh, well, thank you. That's all. That's wonderful. Yeah, you owe me everything and you're ruining and wrecking and destroying my life. Oh, but I'll die for you. It's okay. Would you do that? I doubt it. Just be honest with yourself. So I will close with the following thoughts as I opened up with the program today. To the Jew, is an afterlife possible based on any and all actions of merit, whether earned or acquired through the merit of the fathers, which in Hebrew is zechutavot? That is, a total dependence on whether we lived a good life of Torah saintliness as opposed to one who lived a bad life of Torah sinfulness? Can we do just enough extra good deeds? Say, we pray, pay, and obey, you know, in order to tip the scales and cause our merits from those actions to outweigh our demerits? The answer is no. We have no merit credits that we can offer up to the Creator to cover our gross human condition of the genetic imprint from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because He knows that we are, by our very baked-in nature, we are souls that are lost, dying, and totally bankrupt. And we have nothing to give Him, nor can we even boast of anything before Him as if it were coming from the works that we ourselves are or can or would be able to do. To the atheist, is a man inherently good? Does goodness exist in all individuals? Can we collectively develop a strategy to evolve our species of mankind and, you know, make the world a better place for everyone now and in the future? No to all three questions. We are a lost, dying, and totally bankrupt humanity And we have nothing by which to repair the world to God's standards, nor can we boast of anything good in us or in this world, except that we should boast in what Messiah Yeshua has already done for us through his death and third day resurrection. Accepting this is pleasing in the sight of the Almighty One, Yehovah. So, if you are a professing atheist... Yes, you're listening to my voice right now and you are some kind of professing atheist. I would say it would be wise right now to change your worldview into something that is going to truly benefit you now and also later. Otherwise, you're going to end up on the chopping block and on the short list of God's judgments and you will end up like toast. And I don't think you're going to want that. So don't take the chance, not worth the risk. I would think it through carefully. And to Christians, is man created in the image of God? The answer is no. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. And we were made in the image of the fallen Adam after he lost his image from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. This is the biblical declaration of Genesis 5, 1-3. In the day that God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. Damut in Hebrew. 
And then it goes on to say that Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own demut or likeness after his image and named him Seth. But that was after his fall. We come from the line from Adam after his fall through Seth or Sheth and then down line. We don't come from Adam before his fall. No. So we're not made in God's image. We're made in man's image. But by being born from above, you go from the first Adam to the second Adam and you become like Elohim, like God, in that you become like him and you now have his image once again on the inside and we are now waiting for the final image to set in through the resurrection of the last day when our bodies are exchanged for new creations. Then we will be whole and totally complete as a new creation in Messiah, and we will no longer be carrying the burden of the image of Adam after his fall. Now, I want to close on this subject with an idea, a teaching out of Judaism from ancient days from the prayer called Tashlich. Now, generally, it is customary to recite these Tashlich prayers out of body of water. In that Tashlich prayer, there are 13 attributes of Yehovah. These differ slightly from the 13 attributes of Yehovah as they were given to Moses back in Exodus chapter 34. The 13 attributes given to Moses are generally referred to as the lower attributes or the lower ones, and the attributes given for Tashlich, these are generally referred to as the higher level attributes as they are referenced by the prophet Micah or Micha in chapter 7. So I will read to you some of the commentary from attribute number 13 of the higher attributes of Yehovah from the prayers of Tashlich. So attribute number 13 of these higher attributes is called the Mimei Kedem, which you could translate simply as from the times of the ancient days or from the ancient times. Here is how it reads. Even if the merit of the forefathers were to be exhausted, and for that you can see Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat 55a. Even if that should happen, God would be merciful because of the good deeds that Israel performed from the day of its inception. Similarly, when encountering a person who seems to lack virtue, one should say, surely in his early youth, this person performed some good deeds. Thus, no one can be found unworthy of goodness and mercy. And so the point is made that if we will follow these attributes and the heart of these prayers, that it will give us a guarantee of a share in the world to come. However, again, we have to go back to what Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 26 with the words that he was speaking about concerning the new covenant. He said, For this is my blood of the new covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. This is the definition of good in the Bible. This is the basis for being made worthy to inherit an afterlife of eternal bliss in the life of the world to come. This is what merits us eternal life when we come to the Father in Yeshua's name and we say, I recognize that I cannot be made just by my own actions. I choose now to receive your actions of faithfulness, resulting in granting me a divine acquittal of my previously inherited Adamic genome of corruption, that genetic imprint from the Garden of Eden's tree of the knowledge of good and evil which then changes my inside and it will change my outside to declare me with your approval of justness and righteousness. Well, is it based on merit? That is, the merit of the patriarchs, the merit of the fathers. Or is it based on something we can do by observing Judaism's three principles of uh, instructions or laws. Pray, pay, and obey. Well, Scripture is pretty clear that those principles are not going to get you very far because you're still going to come up short on Judgment Day. That is what Yeshua totally meant when He gave us Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the Brit Hadashah, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins, for the breakaway of the genetic imprint passed down to us. Shalom from Coming Home. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai of Real Israel Talk Radio.